Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large. Uh, coming at you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, as well as with video here on YouTube. Uh, this week, Alexandra Stein, cult expert, highly recommended by John Atack, who we've had on the show many times, and somebody who has written some very interesting books and done some very interesting interviews on this topic, has, a, um, her, has her own uh, cult background, which we will uh, discuss briefly here and go over. So I just want to get right to it. Alexandra, thank you very much for being on my podcast. Well, thanks very much for inviting me. I've had, heard nothing but good things about your work. Oh, well, good. <laughs> um, so, okay, well, let's go ahead and get to it. I don't know that all of my viewers are going to necessarily know who you are. Um, so what is your basic background? How'd you get involved in this whole sordid cult yeah. world? Right. It's not really a career choice you make in high school, is it? Um, anyway, uh, it's to cut a very long story short, and the long story's in my first book, Inside Out, for anyone who's interested. I have somewhat of an English accent. I was actually born in South Africa, raised in London, and as a adventurous 18-year-old wound up in California. Um, and had a, some good years in California being a kind of left-wing activist, and activism of that kind was sort of in my bones from my family background. My family were involved in some of the anti-apartheid struggles in South Africa. Um, my mother's family were activists going back a generation or two in England. So, you know, it was just a very natural thing for me to get involved with. And after some years when Reagan came in, um, and things started really shifting in the atmosphere. So my San Francisco activism was kind of post-Vietnam War period. And then in 1980, Reagan came in, and things just kind of shut down a bit in terms of the progressive movement. And I wanted to carry on. I didn't want to kind of stop trying to fight for equality and anti-racism and women's equality and so forth. And in that um, kind of moment, I was looking for something else to get involved with because a lot of the projects I had been involved with were kind of come to an end. And as people do who get into cults, you look for something new that fits your interests. And unfortunately for me, what I found was what many 10 years later when I got out, I understood to have been a political cult. And I met somebody who was very nice, who was in San Francisco, who was uh, very good at union organizing, which I was interested in. And sort of through him and through someone else, I ended up joining this group. And then I ended up, they had me move to Minneapolis. Um, Minneapolis has very many wonderful things about it, but it's not a place I would have otherwise have wound up in. <laughs> Having spent a few years there myself, uh, eight months under, you know, below freezing weather and uh, mosquitoes that, you know, big enough to carry off babies. Yeah, I, I get it. I'm just not tough enough for those. <laughs> anyway, I am. Um, so this group was supposedly 
a kind of revolutionary group. It was very secretive and underground, which added to the ease by which it could control people because of the secrecy was so intense. Um, and I was rather quickly put into an arranged, or I call it approved, marriage with someone else in the group. Again, it was very out of character for me, but I liked this guy and um, I was already kind of in the group and it sort of made sense in some weird way. At the same time, I was told to basically drop all my previous friends and anyway, they were all thousands of miles away in California. Um, my, my parents no longer had an address for me. They just had a PO box and I became very isolated in this group. Um, I had joined it thinking we were really a left-wing group struggling for social justice and so forth and doing things that I'd already been doing, like union organizing and women's healthcare and childcare projects. But as I got into it, I just noticed I was doing things like working in a bakery for free, of course. And then being told what job to have, I was told first to be a machinist. It was kind of an interesting experience. Um, and then to be a computer programmer. Um, I was put into this relationship. I was also told quite quickly to have children. Now, I know a lot of people listening to this are undoubtedly gonna think, well, why did you go along with it? And after I got out, that was the question I had. Why did I go along with it? I was this, you know, really, I wasn't a weak-willed person. I was quite a tough cookie. And I was a feminist and I had been independent for, you know, many years. And that's kind of what led me to start studying this because I needed to understand what had happened to me personally. And as I got involved and got involved in cult awareness activism and saw the terrible uh, damage and losses sometimes of life that people suffer, it seemed like this was a really important thing to try to contribute to understanding and add to the really excellent work that had already been done by people like Margaret Singer and many other people at that time. Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, let me ask, let me ask you a couple. A short, short version, but. No, yeah. that was, yeah, that was fine. That's totally fine. I've, I have a myriad of questions for you and we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff here. So. Uh, first off, can you tell me, what, what did this group have a name? Well, it kind of did. Before I joined, it was called the Co-op Organization because it had kind of come in through the food co-ops in Minneapolis, which were very, Minneapolis was a center of food co-ops. It started some of the very early ones. And it was, there was a very vibrant progressive left-wing movement there. And some people think this, cult was actually kind of brought in to break up that left-wing movement. Um, that's another long story, but it's a hypothesis I tend to uh, think is true. Because this guy, the leader, Theophilus Smith, just kind of showed up one day at a hippie farm and started organizing people. And he came from Mississippi. There's kind of no reason you can quite make sense of where he came from. But he clearly had skills when it came to knowing how to bring people in, uh, he was charismatic, how to start controlling their lives and so forth. Um, <clears throat> got the question. 
Uh, no, it was no that 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 you've answered it already as far as what the group was called. Interesting, the co-op. Yeah, so I was, just to add to that, but then when I joined, it had sort of gone underground completely. So it had kind of split the co-op movement, grabbed a chunk of people, maybe 150, 200 people into itself, um, and then kind of went underground where it became known as the O, as in the organization, as in there are no others, right? Later I found out that Pol Pot's um, Khmer Rouge that were committed the genocide of a third of the Cambodian people was also called the organization. You know, they all use a lot of the similar language, don't they? You know, anyway. Right, right. Well, yeah, because it's the organization, even Cosa Nostra, you know, means our business, is, if, yeah. I, if I remember that right, you know, so... Yeah. Right. You know, these, these high control groups are, you know, definitely create a, a singular sort of thing about themselves. They are the one, you know. Or, or if they're not the organization, they're the family, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. And I really, I was very, very interested in this because this is a non-religious group. And I've talked, you know, I've, I've, I've always taken care and tried to mention that, you know, political groups, sports groups, martial arts dojos can become these groups and I and I found I sort of I sort of struck on this independently I mean I didn't it wasn't because somebody told me this that I that I realized this but I've come to now realize that you know there's a lot of smart people who came before me who already figured this out which is that um, would you agree with me that that when we're talking about these high control totalist groups we're talking about abusive relationships is the basis of what forms these groups, not kooky religious beliefs. Exactly, exactly. And certainly they come in almost any guise you can imagine. You yes. know, um, therapy, um, physical fitness, uh, certainly zillions of political ones. I mean, I listened to your show, it was very recent with John Sweeney, who's, you know, done like, great stuff on Scientology and he was talking about North Korea and the only and I think he's great you know and he gets this stuff so this isn't really a criticism it's an observation but he referred a couple of times to the North Korean regime as a political religion yes now it's not a religion it's communist and the you know bad communist because you know I'm still a left-wing person I wouldn't call myself a communist but anyway again it's not the beliefs but it's certainly not a religion. You have to really stretch the definition of religion um, to say that. But I think because people can only conceptualize cults as religious, they keep trying to do that. But you know, the early work by Lifton was of course, as you will know, about the Chinese and North Korean brainwashing systems. Again, not religious, these were communist systems. Uh, Hitler did not run a religious um, operation. It was political. So I think it's just a kind of hangover somehow from some of the early scholarship. I don't exactly know why this is so entrenched. Well, it's, I, here's what I would think from the view of, a, of a, someone who's never been involved in a, in a cult or, or a high control group and looks from the outside in you see a central authority figure or figures. Usually it's a figure. It's usually an individual, although it can be a, a small group. 
and you see a kind of reverence for that individual bordering on worship in some cases. I have certainly said, and I think many other exes uh, coming out of Scientology have said, hey, look, we, we never worship Del Ron Hubbard. We don't worship David Miscavige. And yet, there, you know, in the same sense that I don't think Catholics would say they worship the Pope, mm-hmm. but there is a reverence for this figure. There is a, you know, there's sort of a holy divinity sort of, uh, this individual represents a state of being or awareness or leadership that is that is much greater than I would assign to any other individual. And people, I think, can mistake that for worship or a religious, you know, div- divinity or something. And, you know, they get confused. And what I'd like to clarify about that, because I think it's an important point, is you know, us sociologists call that charisma, right? It's a relationship right. between a leader and followers. And we know that Martin Luther King had what we might call a charismatic relationship with his followers. Nelson Mandela, one of my heroes, you know, that was a charismatic relationship. And, you know, those, again, they were not religious in that they weren't seen as um, God, but they were seen as inspirational figures. Um, I'm glad you brought, yeah, I'm glad you brought them up because actually this is a good chance to do a little compare and contrast because while they, they, there is a reverence for, I mean, Martin Luther King is absolutely one of my heroes. Uh, Nelson Mandela, absolutely as well. Uh, If for no other reason than these people literally put their lives on the line for their beliefs and they were right. They were on the right side of history with what they were doing. They were fighting for equality and, and, and reasonable points of view. Um, and there is a reverence for those figures, but they are not high control group figures. They're not totalists. Right. And, uh, and, it's, and it's good. Maybe we could compare and contrast here a little bit. Like, what is it that you would say makes the difference between Mandela and Martin Luther King Jr. and their followers? And their followers are legion. They definitely have followers. But what's the difference between a group like that and a group like Scientology or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the group you were involved in? Well, first of all, let's not quite, I mean, they did have groupings. Um, You know, Mandela was the head of the ANC after all, but it also went beyond that, the people who revered him. So in that sense, the structures were more porous in a funny way. They weren't quite as closed and shut down. As Scientology, you're kind of either in or out. You know, there's not much of a halfway point unless you happen to be walking through the door ready to get your personality test, you know. Um, and that wouldn't be true. And people outside of Scientology wouldn't, so to speak, have reverence for the leadership. Whereas people outside of the ANC or was it the SCLC, I think was King's grouping, would also have reference. So you have a difference in how their structures are. Um, I always say very simply, they weren't bullies. They didn't have that authoritarian streak, the mean streak, and the controlling streak that we see in these charismatic figures um, who are cult leaders. Also, they tend to try to speak something resembling the truth. 
they're not making up fictional accounts of what's happening. And that's really important. You know, Hannah Arendt is one of my heroes. And she talks a lot about the importance in these totalitarian systems of how they build a fictional world. Scientology is a beautiful example of that. And the closer you get to the center, the more fiction you get, the more crazy the fiction is. And she talks about this in relation to Hitler and Stalin's regimes. And at how at the outer edges, you have to have something that sort of is starting to be fiction, but still speaks in a language that people can resonate with because they're not really cut off from the real world yet, but as they get more and more cut off. So the, so the leaders kind of follow along from this and cultic leaders, you know, speak what I also scientifically like to refer to as gobbledygook. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, you know, a Mandela or a, or a King are reflecting people's actual experience and people are resonating with that rather than imagined enemies um, and imagined glories that are to come. And again, in North Korea, you can see that very clearly. You know, their posters are these kind of paradisical worlds while the population is starving. Um, well, exactly. I think you're making a really good point here, actually, um, because at the outer edges of Scientology, people ask, with, with groups like Scientology, who, when, when you expose the, the Xenu narrative or some of the kookier beliefs or the most, you know, the most like kind of fictional, as we'll just say, belief structure that exists at the center of this thing, that you wonder how possibly could you ever become involved in something so crazy? And you go, well, look, that's not what they're telling you on day one. Right. They're telling you, you know, the stuff at the outer edges is very common sense, very, very, it makes a lot of sense actually, uh, has a lot of appeal to people and they get drawn in through that and very gradually they're giving you deeper and deeper core beliefs. And I think that's a key difference between, uh, in terms of these groups, because with Martin Luther King Jr., for example, or, or Mandela, it was fully informed consent in terms of, you know, what we're about is that everything we're telling you on day one. That's, that is what we're doing. There isn't some other hidden agenda here. Right. And exactly. that's, I, think that's, I think that's a key part of, of these groups. Yeah. yeah. And though Mandela had to, at a certain point when the, um, the, the apartheid government was after him, you know, some of them had to go into hiding. So there was a kind of secrecy. And certainly, you know, the ANC had to be secret or they get all killed or thrown in jail. And... You know, that was a bit the model for me when I was in my group because I knew a lot about the ANC. I've been brought up, you know, we had some of my parents' best friends were leadership in the ANC. I was very familiar with all of that. So I kind of, in a, I agree, totally naive way, but young people are often naive. I wasn't the only one. You know, saw that, well, it was important to be secret and underground because, you know, look at the ANC. And also in the States at that time, the Black Panthers, who, by the way, themselves have a little few problems in their history, but that's another story. You know, they were getting shot and killed and Kent State shootings had happened. So, you know, there was enough in the atmosphere for me to feel that it was justified to be secretive. But that secrecy was a fake one. 
you know, where in South Africa that secrecy was necessary to, you know, to keep people alive. Um, well, exactly. And it's not a matter there. You're talking about different types of secrecy because, you know, keeping your location secret because, you know, authoritarian authorities, <laughs> so to speak, are after you and want to, you know, destroy what you're doing because you're trying to bring civil rights to people is a whole different thing from you have to pay us $250,000 before we're going to tell you about Xenu. I mean, we're, this is apples and oranges as far as that goes. So I think, yes, yeah, so I think these are good points to make, but also we need to be clear that, you know, when you need to maintain some level of secrecy because because uh, you're fighting in a way a destructive cult situation, that's a little bit different, you know. In my group, um, though, we did think we were like the ANC and we were fighting the regime and therefore that became the justification for you know my parents not having my um, address or phone number, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I used to look at what we were doing and what I saw was we were running a bakery, we had a computer company. I mean, I wasn't supposed to know everything. That was the other part of the secrecy is you only knew your tiny little piece. But I always, you know, it was like, why are we secret? You know, what are we doing that's supposedly changing the world? And, you know, I, I was always asking questions, which, you know, I hadn't learned yet not to, but that was a kind of crime. Um, and I would get the answer, well, I get two answers. One was, you know, well, if you keep struggling with the practice, you'll understand. And the other answer was, we're transforming ourselves. And we had this thing called the internal transformation process, which didn't impress me at all, but nonetheless, I went along with it. So that we were kind of readying ourselves ideologically for fighting the revolution, that we weren't really ready yet. Now, this must be a classic in religious organizations, cults, I imagine. Um, again, we weren't religious, but we used those same kind of uh, methods of, you know, it's just around the corner. You just have to get ready for it kind of thing. Um, right, right. All right, let me, let me pivot for a second here. I have yeah. some other things I want to ask you about, and then we'll kind of get back into some of this cult stuff. You have, you have talked about social psychology, and I'm curious from an academic standpoint, what, you know, could you explain the difference between sociology? You're a sociologist by degree, is that right? I am, although really what I am, I consider myself a social psychologist. Okay, so good. My department was sociology, where I got my doctorate. So, yeah, so what would you say, how would you describe the difference between psychology, sociology, and social psychology? What, is, what are these things? Well, I think the simplest way to say it is, generally speaking, sociology is seen as a study of groups and societies. Psychology is sort of generally considered the study of individuals. And social psychology sits in between. And it's the study of the interactions within groups, between people, between groups, uh, between individuals, and between individuals and groups. That would be social psychology. So it kind of sits in between those two other disciplines. And it's great. And more people need to be studying it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's certainly something I am very interested in. I, it seems to me, I wanted to kind of go into academia for a second here, maybe more than a couple seconds. Um, because I have some, you know, I have, I have some, uh, I haven't entered academia as such. But I've noticed that many academics who take on this 
topic or go into studying high control groups have experience with having been in a high control group or some of some kind. And, you know, when we come out of groups like this, you know, the first question, of course, is what the hell just happened to me? And then you start answering that question and you start, of course, diving into um, things. And if you're really interested, if you want to get more than a surface level understanding, then you start getting into the literature, meaning, you know, meaning the academic literature. And I have been singularly unimpressed by a lot of the literature that I've read uh, in the academic world. But I, and I've actually deconstructed on my channel a whole book on Scientology, which was called Scientology, put together by James R. Lewis and, and uh, you know, um, Gordon Melton and, and, and those, those types had contributed essays to it. And by those types, I mean people who will practically write their papers quoting Scientology promotional materials, but will not listen to apostates or former members, and in fact invalidate their experiences or their statements by saying, we're going to dismiss them because they simply have an axe to grind, which is horribly uh, non-objective as far as I'm concerned uh, from an academic standpoint. And one considers that academics are supposed to come into this from an objective point of view and, and, and do some research and look at what's going on and then report on that or talk about that or analyze it and come up with something intelligent to say. So when I found an entire book on Scientology, which really just repeated most of Scientology's lines and did not challenge most of what Scientology had to say, and in fact, apologized for a great deal of it by calling it a new religious movement, and therefore we should grant them all of this latitude and leeway and ignore the abusives and the abusive stories that come out of these groups, and especially Scientology in this case, my mouth sort of twisted in an ugly way, and I sort of thought, what is this? This is, you know, it looks to me that this is very intellectually dishonest. So you've gone all the way into academia as a former group, you know, former high control group member. I am looking at perhaps doing the same in the future, but I'm leery. I see this, I see these attitudes, I see, and I hear from people I've talked to in the academic world that, you know, there are factions, there's bureaucracy, there's politics, there's infighting. And I go, wow, I don't know, you know, I don't know about this. But then I find people like you, John, um, Hugh Urban even a little bit, uh, Stephen Kent certainly. And I go, well, there's hope. There are some people who can see through some of this. So. Yanya Lalich, that's not... Yeah, oh, very much Yanya Lalich, yes, who I've also had on this podcast and who I admire greatly. So what's your take on all of that? That's kind of my approach to it, and I'm kind of, wow, really? But what's, what's your view on all of this? Well, I get very angry about it, and if I start squeaking, that's my angry voice. I'd like to have a really deep, angry voice, you know, but now I squeak when I'm angry. because. You're right, there does exist a fairly well-organized sort of clump of these apologist academics. They're not all academics. Some of them are lawyers who pose as academics. Um, some of them are psychologists. You know, there are, but most of them, we can say, are academics in the uh, study in, of uh, sociology of religion. 
that's sort of their favorite home. I think they've done terrific damage. I think they are responsible for the continuation of a great deal of child abuse, sexual, physical, and other emotional, uh, not to mention adults the same. I would probably say they're um, responsible for deaths. I have, you know, I should probably be careful about saying that, but, you know, they have put their weight behind keeping these groups going when other people are trying to expose the reality. And, um, you know, I mean, we have here in London, Eileen Barker and her Inform Institute, our think tank, whatever it's called, at London School of Economics, you know, and they build up all these files about new religious movements. Um, and she's a, a couple of times when I first got here, tried to approach me and get me involved, which was not going to happen. And, you know, I was in a political group. Mine was not a new religious movement. So that really doesn't work for me and for many, many, many other groups. Something else is going on that links, that means why am I talking to you here? There's something that links us and it sure isn't religion. And it's not politics for that matter. It's something else happened to both of us. And that's the question that needs to be explored. Um, but they are well organized. They're in, an international group. Um, there's a, a strong Italian piece of this. Uh, and I think Belgium. That, that's the uh, Cessna group, is that right? Yeah. A C-E-S-N-U-R. That's funded by or bankrolled by a, a fairly uh, Italian high roller who has a big interest in, in, in acting as an apologist for some reason. Right, and it's led by Massimo Intravigne, who himself is a member of a very questionable far-right, I think must be Catholic group. Um, and he's a lawyer. You know, he, he positions himself as if he's an academic. Um, they, as you say, they, I mean, early on in my activism, I came across them. Um, they call people like us angry apostates. Now, first of all, I'm not an apostate. I wasn't in a religious group. You know, I'm someone who just came out of a very small, unpleasant, oppressive group where the leader killed somebody. You know, what am I an apostate from? Plus, I still am a left winger. So I haven't given that up. That's not what the apostasy is about. So that doesn't work for me. Angry, yes, I am angry. I'll give them that part. I'm angry because I and many others are very damaged by these groups. Um, they refer to our stories as atrocity tales. Well, my first book where I tell my story it has atrocious things in it. Yes, it is a story. It's a tale. Yes, but it's true. When you say atrocity tale, that kind of implies that, like you said, you know, you're kind of making the most of it and you're just whinging on about, you know, poor me. Well, yeah, poor me, but let's look at what actually happened and let's look at what happened to the children in that group and so on and so forth. So as you said, it totally dismisses people's experiences of abuse. And frankly, they couldn't get away with it now if, um, let me 
rephrase that. They couldn't get away with it in terms of um, sexual abuse of women with a hashtag Me Too movement. You know, that's not going down very well right now. And I'd like that to spread to these folks, you know. Our stories are true. We ha I have proof, I have all kinds of evidence. All, you know, I have all these books on my bookshelves of people's memoirs who've been in cults. These are true stories and we need to be listening to them. One, when I was doing my academic um, reading, and by the way, I really encourage you to go ahead and go into academia, uh, because we can, you, you can find a way through. You don't have to run into these people. You just got to do a little bit of re research about who your advisor is and so forth. Um, it's really doable, um, what, if, as long as you have a friendly advisor. But one of the things that was very helpful to me was I read the most fantastic book by Laughlin and Laughlin called Doomsday Cult, which was about the uni unification church in its early years. And they were um, in Northern California and they actually, they were two sociologists and they went underground, not, not underground, they went undercover and started joining one of the study groups of the Moonies. They don't call it the Moonies in their book, they have a pseudonym. And they actually experienced what was going on until the point where they would have either have had to fully commit or not, and they had to leave. You know, it just got to that point where you couldn't be on the uh, fence anymore. It's the most fantastic study where they very simply lay out these principles of what they call coercive persuasion. It's brilliant. Now they did that study. Then I went and read Eileen Barker's study uh, called The Making of a Mooney, which was very famous. It made her career. Um, and it's just like what you're saying about the book, the James Lewis book about Scientology. She basically, she spends endless chapters just regurgitating the Mooney's ideology, which is a, just a crazy belief system. It is meaningless to anyone on the outside. She takes everything that they serve to her on what we sociologists call the front stage, the kind of performance that the group is showing her and just takes it at face value and says, oh, well, this is a perfectly lovely group. And to compare those two books that are both studying the same group is really instructive as to what a good study is and what a whitewash is. Um, it's, and, but you know, she really did make her career based on that. Um, that is very interesting. I actually met her just a couple of weeks ago at the ICSA, yeah. International Cultic oh, Studies Association conference. Uh, I only had a, I had a brief conversation with her, but I but I very much intended to have a a short brief conversation with her. I didn't want to become argumentative with her. I mean, she's like I don't know, eighty two years old or something. I mean, she's uh, you know this nice old lady, and I didn't looking very harmless, but you know. It, well, yeah, she actually does, yeah. And I, um, and I, tr and I try to not make assumptions about people, especially before I've even met them, and um, and listen to what she had to say. And I also know that you know there's some good that she's done behind the scenes on some things, but um, but no, I can't. You know, I can't. I have to agree with you that I can't. I can't go there with these apologists. And I realized one day, um, and again, I'm probably just coming at this independently. I'm sure others have as well that 
that the that the best way to sidestep the entire new religious movement NRM argument that they make because this is seems to be the bedrock of the the foundation of how they are rationalizing or justifying the existence of these groups and and rationalizing the study quote unquote I put in air quotes here the the study of these groups as though they are legit when we know they are not, I mean, let's just take Scientology, for example, it can call itself a religion all day long, but we know for a fact that the reason they're doing it is so that they gain legal protections and, and First Amendment protections. So we can, we can sidestep that entire argument by, by showing that, the, that the, the problem here is that it is an abusive relationship. It is not anything to do with the beliefs as such, to the degree that the beliefs inform action and that the beliefs, you know, will, will affect how a person acts. Yeah, sure. Okay, good. But the beliefs are really just sort of a rationalization for the abuse. And it's the abusive relationship between the leadership and the followers and the, and the sort of codependent relationship that exists between them. I know that's a loaded word, but, you know, by that, I mean that both parties are dependent upon the other. If we really bring it down to that, sociologically, I think, and psychologically, I think we're looking at the heart of the of the issue. I, I'm curious, what do you what do you think about all that? I, I totally agree. I mean, in in my second book, Terror, Love, and Brainwashing, I mean, I sort of gave them a couple of sentences, the apologists, because I made a decision a long time ago not to really get into an argument, because I think first they're not really um, they're not going to change their minds. They've got too much invested in it. They testify in court on the side of the cults. Um, we know some of them have taken money from the cults. You know, they've got their interests at heart and they, those interests are opposite to mine. So I, I have just decided not to really engage with it. And, but exactly what I do engage with in that book is trying to look closely at that abusive relationship, how it works in cults, and why, in a way, we always see the same patterns um, going on. And I tried hard to link all the patterns to the fundamental, what I call disorganizing relationship between the follower and the group. It's the same as that which occurs in controlling domestic violence, um, as the, you know, the kind of micro version up to the macro version of a state such as North Korea with us victims of cults in the middle. Um, so yeah, that was really what I was trying to demonstrate in that book, is to talk about that relationship. Excellent. Well, let's go ahead and talk about that a minute because I was really curious. I, I was watching a couple of interviews that you did and some Q&A you did, I think after a book sign-in and you mentioned this business of, you, you have this book you know, about uh, terror and love and brainwashing, I think is the title of it. And so you talk about terror and love and the counterbalance of these two things and how they are used as control mechanisms. Could you describe how that works? Yeah, and just to say, you know, there are other scholars, you know, a lot of us, we're all trying to describe the same thing and we use slightly different models and slightly different words, but they're really all kind of compatible with each other. And, you know, Ben Zablocki, who's another really excellent scholar in this field, he talks about the assault, uh, the alternation of assault and leniency, which you can see is kind of the same thing. Um, but the way I talk about it is these, 
let's start with the leader. The leader has both, as we've discussed, charisma, or is charismatic, and it's also authoritarian. And that, again, kind of maps to the love and fear pieces. So it really does stem from the leader's personality. I think that's the first thing to understand, at least the original leader's personality. Um, and if you think of just a one-on-one -on -one relationship of a frightening person with a victim, let's say, um, and if that, if that relationship is isolated and the victim has nowhere else to go and the only supposed safe place is this frightening person. You know, let's look at a controlling domestic violence relationship, for example. So, you know, you have the charming boyfriend who brings a bunch of flowers and love bombs the girl and slowly starts isolating her, slowly starts making it clear that you know he has the right to check her phone and that she doesn't really need to be seeing her other friends oh and by the way he'll look after the money and by the way she doesn't really need to go out except to do shopping um you know you start gradually encapsulating the person within this relationship and then this boyfriend or cult leader or whoever it is also is starting to frighten or stress that person. So what we know from attachment theory, which is the basis of my work, and which was a theory that was based on child development, actually, by John Bowlby, is that as human beings, we've evolved so that babies and parents stay close to each other. If they didn't, the babies would get, you know, chewed up by lions or lost or whatever. So babies engage in what we call attachment behavior. That's crying or signaling or various ways to get their parents' attention when they need it, when they're feeling stressed or tired or hungry. And the parent usually is going to respond if they're a halfway decent parent, right? So what happens, and this is kind of happening at a biochemical level, the baby's cortisols are ri rising when they're stressed. They engage in these attachment behaviors to get the parent to come. By the way, the parent's cortisols are rising too. You know, when a baby's screeching in the background, you, go, you get a little anxious, right? And you go and comfort the baby. And what happens then is the baby's opioids, their endogenous opioids, which we have, which are our kind of comfort hormones, rise as the parent comforts that child. And their cortisols go down, they feel unstressed, everything's okay. Eventually they've had enough opioids, they're comforted enough, go away mom, I need to go out and you know explore my environment again. And that's kind of a happy uh, homeostasis that happens. But if the parent is frightening and the baby goes towards the parent for comfort, but what they're getting is more stress or fear. Now you have a maladaptive system. They're not getting the opioids they need. Their cortisol stay high. So the baby stays in this kind of anxious, stressed state. And if there's no one else they can go to, if they're isolated in that system, what's going to end up happening is two things. They're going to stay trying to get close to the parent to get those 
opioids, even if they're not available, they're going to try because bi biologically they've evolved to keep trying to get comfort. Um, eventually, though, they kind of give up because so they're trying to stay proximate to the parent, but at the same time, they also start to just freeze. It's like, well, this isn't working. I've got no way out. I'm stressed. I can't deal with this. I mean, that, a baby won't obviously be thinking this, but and they start to dissociate. So this is a kind of long description of what's called disorganized attachment. And this can happen with adults too in close relationships. So that frightening boyfriend who's isolated the woman, she's going to stay clinging. She's got nowhere else to go. So that isolation is really important, right? If she had somewhere, a good friend she could call, she'd go off there. But the chap has isolated her, right? She stays clinging, but this, there's no useful way to think about this relationship. This is a dangerous relationship. And that's where you get dissociation. And she can no longer think clearly about that relationship. Like, this is dangerous. I better get out of here because there's no way out. So then you get dissociation. It's just deer in the headlights. In that dissociation, which is basically you can't think about your feelings, the person who's creating that can tell you what you're feeling. You're feeling like crap because you're really not trying hard enough to please me. You made me hit you. You know, if only you would be more obedient, etc., etc. So it's not a giant step to now apply this to cults, right? Oh no, this feeds right into that. This yeah. this also explains or helps explain. Uh, codependent relationships, the, the, the woman who stays with the abusive husband, the husband who stays with the abusive wife. Yeah. I'd like to point out that this is not a gender-specific thing. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it tends to be more weighted in the other way just because of the society we live in. But of course, and I definitely grant that. I just want to make sure it's yeah, presented on both sides. And, yeah. yeah, and we, of course, have many women cult leaders. So, you know, it's not just men who run cults. Um, so to, yeah, it's not gender specific. Um, so in a cult, you have the same thing. And the thing I really want to stress is this dynamic only works if you've isolated people, because if people have another safe place that they know is safe, they're not going to stay in this crazy situation. They'll go off to their good friend or their whoever and say, Hey, this person's acting mean to me, or I'm confused. I don't know what's going on they'll get some kind of verification or validation and comfort and so forth. They got a way out. But the principal thing I think that cults do is to isolate people. And that creates the space for this frightening, dissociating dynamic to take place. And to me, this was a very helpful insight because it then explains from my perspective, why we see in cults all close and personal and trusting relationships attacked because that is a commonality across all cults and up to the level of a state like north korea where people are frightened to talk to their spouse if you read some of the books written by defectors from north korea you see mm -hmm. this you know where uh, a couple couldn't confide in each other 
And it turns out later, of course, they were both thinking the same thing. But trust levels are so low because the price of trusting the wrong person is death in North Korea. Now, so, and again, you know, we see um, couples broken apart in cults, or put together random, you know, randomly or according to the cult's wishes, not one's personal wishes. We see friendships broken up. We know that people can't carry on friendships with the people in the outside world. Um, we see relationships with children controlled, or, you know, often I think Scientology is a case in point, you know, children, especially in the Sea Org, live separately from their parents from really an inappropriately young age. So we really see this pattern of attacks on close, what could be close and trusting relationships. And that's why I think it is, because if you had that, it would be what I call a, an escape hatch attachment in which you could find a little island of safety in which you can start reintegrating your thought processes and go, I don't like this. I think I better get out of here which is actually how I got out. <laughs> right, right. I think, that's a, I think that's a really good analysis. I've not heard of attachment theory, so I haven't brought it down to that level. And I think that that's a great uh, explanation for a lot of what, you know, I'm sure that you have talked about, certainly what I've talked about on my channel, um, and how that, and, and why, and this actually is, is good because it also reinforces for me the idea that I've been giving some decent advice when I say, no matter what, to friends and family of people who are, you know, joining these groups or who are concerned about somebody who has joined one of these groups, the best thing you can do for them, the first thing, the most fundamental is stay in touch with them. You know, don't cut off the line and don't give them an excuse to yeah. cut the line because you need to be there for them uh, when they have questions, when they realize they're a little isolated, when they're feeling that, that, that lowering of the, of the dopamine or the, or the you know, the, the, the problems that they're experiencing and they don't know who to go to to talk to. You can be that person if you're, if you're still in their universe, so to speak. And if you, you know, get so upset with them because of their kooky belief system that they're buying into or the odd behavior that they're starting to engage in, or they're being encouraged to cut off from you or sever ties with you, you know, anything you can do, if and if it's just let's let's stay in touch just so that we can keep talking about sailboats or whatever the hobby is you have in common or whatever it is. It's so important to maintain that for all the reasons I think you just laid out. I totally agree. And also, I mean, of course, people get terribly upset when their family member rejects them as people getting into cults do. So it's totally understandable that, you know, you just want to say, well, piss off then. But I totally agree with you. And I also counsel people, you know, just hang in there, stay in touch. Because otherwise, you're really going with the cult's program. The cult wants you to be angry and to cut them off. That just helps them. And so let's not do that, you know. Um, I just yeah. want to say one more thing about the dissociation, because I think that's another really important thing. Because you have these two effects from this 
disorganized bond, which you can also call a trauma bond. One is this kind of clinging because that's now the only safe place left is the group if you cut everyone else off. Um, and also the belief system is telling you the rest of the world is terrible, the apocalypse is coming, et cetera, et cetera. So, and if everyone around you is kind of um, accentuating, amplifying that, you're now in this frightened state, you're clinging to what seems to be safe. So that's the emotional effect, but this cognitive effect of dissociation is what we see when people are in situations of trauma. And there's been some really good scholarship and scientific studies about this. Um, the work of Alan Shaw was really important to, uh, to me as well as Dan Siegel in understanding this. And simply when they've done kind of these MRI and PET scans and so on of people's brains when sort of remembering trauma, and I'm not talking about recovered memories, I'm talking about rememberable, clearly remembered trauma, they see that the piece that kind of, in a way, links the lower emotional, emotion-holding regions of the brain with the higher-order thinking, our frontal cortex, that does our kind of logical, language-based thinking. There's a little piece called the orbital frontal cortex. You'll be tested on this. Um, that kind of decides when you're having a feeling or an experience, do I need to send this up to the higher order regions of my brain to think about? It's called the master regulator of the feeling brain. Is this, can I just feel this, is that okay? Or do I actually need to think clearly about it and make some good decisions? That piece in trauma isn't working. So things aren't, and they can see that on these scans. So when these apologists say, you know, we can't ever prove brainwashing. I think that we could, partly by doing these kind of scans on people remembering their cult experiences and so forth. Because I think we're gonna see that their memory of that, especially in people who have not recovered well, I mean, it wouldn't happen with me because I've told my story three zillion times. It's nicely stored up here now. But when I was first out, I think you would have seen that I would have had a lot of feelings about it. That's what we call PTSD and triggering and all that flashbacks, all those things. They're happening in the lower regions of the brain. And it's not making it up to the higher order thinking because this little orbital frontal cortex is blanked out in trauma. That is fascinating. That almost defines what is trauma then. Because really, trauma is simply our reaction to a, a, an incident that happens. It's not, you know, the incident itself is just something that happened. But our, what we carry with us is, is, is what we call the trauma. That's, and unless yeah. you metabolize and deal with the trauma, it stays in the memory that's just the emotion memory, so to speak, which doesn't have a sense of things happening in the past. It's as if it's all still happening and it can kind of bleed into your current uh, state, which is again, what we call being triggered or flashbacks. Whereas if you've processed it, you know, whether it's through talking to a, a sympathetic other or therapy or writing or whatever it may be, you put language to that, you actually process that trauma. So now I can talk about my traumatic 
10 years in a cult without getting all freaked out and breaking out in a cold sweat because I've put language to it. I understand it. I have a kind of analysis. It's not vividly alive in that emotion region of my brain. It's kind of more nicely stacked away. And I can't remember who is some, it's consigned to the past. Interesting. I have to, I have to draw a parallel right now to some of the stuff Hubbard wrote in Dianetics. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I mean, but isn't it, I mean, th on a theoretical level, this is very interesting because we're talking, Hubbard never talked about the brain. In fact, he invalidated anything having to do with the brain. So let's just throw out, I mean, I'm not in any way trying to endorse Hubbard's sure you know, theories here. But the parallel is very interesting because the parallel because the statement he made is that uh, moments of pain and unconsciousness in the past, uh, you know, that that are traumatic episodes, are sitting there in a part of your mind. And he associated this not to the brain. He associated this to, you know, some mental spiritual mass. Um, but he basically kind of, you know, the the basic of the theory was kind of correct. It was a very general thing. Is you have these traumatic episodes and they are sitting there undealt with. And he even called Dianetic auditing processing. You have to process it and bring it and refile it into the upper, you know, more analytical regions of your mind, which he called the analytical mind. And, um, and so I, anyway, I just, I, I know that there are going to be, if a Scientologist happened to be watching this, they'd be going, see, see, Hubbard was right. So I had to address that because I have to say, no, Hubbard wasn't right. And he built this entire authoritarian structure on top of this that simply re-traumatizes people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so let's not, you know, let's not, it is apples and oranges, but I just had to laugh at some of the, the, the fundamental parallels there that I think is what appeals to people about dynamics yeah. because it speaks to them, uh, you know, truth is truth. And I think that when you're onto something that people can inherently feel is right because it, it aligns with their experiences, then that's one of the ways that you grab them, you know? So you want to have, and maybe this is an object lesson here. I will bring this up and, and where does this go? It goes, you know, a thing can exist or a thing can happen, but it can be interpreted 20 different ways. And, you know, Hubbard's, interpretation of this thing might have some degree of truth to it but then what he does with it is he takes it out to this nth degree and makes it a horrible thing and and controls your life with it what we want to do in therapy is take this thing and deal with it so that you can lead a happier better life you know less traumatized life and know? also you're having agency and autonomy over it it's not someone else telling you you know, what you need to buy or, you know, what you're going to commit your life to in order to gain this marvelous, clear state. You know, it's, it's you dealing with your own life as an alternative. Exactly. Exactly. And I think also another very, very important part of this, and I've said this before, is um, Dianetics, this regression therapy that you sort of do with Dianetics, is not universally workable. It's not the only way to deal with this kind of situation. Uh, there are some people who do not respond that way. And in fact, it will re-traumatize them and make it even worse. 
That's this true. is why, in fact, psychology has rejected Dianetics almost whole cloth because they go, yeah, no, we actually did do that. We did experiment with that. And you know what? Not only does it not work all the time, it doesn't work most of the time. So let's do something different, you know. It, I, I'd be interested to ask you, because in my book I talk about, so this dissociation, not being able to think about your feelings and how most cults actually quite explicitly tell you not to think about your feelings. So in my cult, it was the version of don't have feelings. Feelings are subjective and they're bad and they're not good for evolution. We have to be objective, you know, serious people. In a lot of kind of Eastern religious cults, it's all about, you know, only have your feelings, you know, don't, you know, it's monkey mind or whatever they call it, you know, don't get stuck in your mind. You know, that's the, I, I, I'm not entirely against mindfulness, but I do often call it mindlessness because I think a lot of cults are using it now to get people, you know, it's fine for a bit to be mindful or, you know, but you really want to also hang on to your critical mind. <laughs> you don't want to let it go completely. Just give it a rest once in a while. That's fine. But anyway, so you get these messages and cults either not to think or not to feel or not to put the two together, certainly. In Scientology, can you think of, was that an aspect of it? Do you... Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, the, the, for staff members and Sea Org members, um, more so than for your general public, although this applies equally to public Scientologists as well. And this is the factor of what Hubbard called controlling your emotions. Um, there was, he divided, he created a scale of emotions and he divided them into positive and negative emotions and he, and, and the lower level of emotions of grief, fear, apathy, anger, hostility. Um, these were misemotions, he called them. They were, they were, uh, they were bad emotions or negative emotions. And your, the idea was that you were the one who was creating these emotions as a spiritual entity. They were merely a vibration or wavelength. Uh, you know, each emotion was a was a different type of of uh, or measurement of a of a wavelength of 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 spiritual vibration. I guess this does not make sense because spirituality oh, is supposed to be non. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to be non physical, and yet you're creating this physical wave of a vibration of something. I don't know what's vibrating, but something is. And uh, I'm going to do a whole video on that eventually. But, but the point is that you're creating it. Mm -hmm. And that these emotions are simply a reflection of how you're interacting with the physical universe. And so you can choose to change the wavelength. You can change the emotion. And, uh, and you're the one who is at cause, he said. You're the one who's in charge of this. So what you would, what, how this actually works, while that sounds wonderful, and for a short periods of time, it can work. It can be helpful even in some ways because you have to get on with your life. And if you've had a recent loss or you've experienced some kind of upset or you're really, really mad at somebody or something like that, you learn to sort of park that to the side and get on with your life. And that's, there's nothing particularly dest inherently destructive about that. That becomes a problem and it becomes really an emotional issue when, you be when that becomes habitual, when you keep 
doing that and you keep doing it because what ends up happening is um, that emotion that you're feeling, you are rejecting it, even though it's how you actually do feel and how you actually really honestly are responding to something, but you have to park it to the side or in other words, you have to suppress it. You have to deny that it is. And that's very difficult because I don't quite understand why. I don't have all the brain theory or neurology on this, but I, and I know nobody else does totally have this figured out yet either. But we need to experience our emotions. That's the kind of creatures we are. We, we, you can't just keep denying how you feel and not expect to have some long-term consequences. For me, and from what I've seen from others, those consequences equate to a sort of deadness where you sort of stop being able to experience the emotions. You don't, you, you, you've suppressed them for so long that you forget how to process them or you don't know how to deal with them anymore. And I, that expressed itself in my life after I got out of Scientology. Um, this, oh, by the way, this practice for staff members is called no case on post. You have a job. It's your post. It's your, it's your thing you're doing. And you're not supposed to have this case, you know, this, this emotional well. And, that was the same as what we had. You're supposed yeah, to be- same thing. It was a very Mr. Spot kind of approach, right? So for me, how that uh, ended up kind of blowing up for me was uh, because what happens is when I was in the group, I'm still feeling this stuff, right? I'm still feeling anger and upset. And sometimes it ends up blowing up. You just suppress it for so long. It's a powder keg. And then, and then something really inappropriate happens because you're taking out way too much anger on somebody who doesn't deserve it, or you're experiencing way too much anxiety or grief, uh, or PTSD symptomology, because you've been suppressing it for so long. After I got out, I had a um, part of the process of me leaving was the disconnection, and I lost my fiance at the time. This back in 2013. This was a major blow to me. It was huge. I took me about a year before it started dawning on me. I'm not dealing with this. I've got this huge, you know, well of emotion and loss and, and grief. I, I, I hadn't cried. I hadn't really, you know, been able to process it. And I hadn't, and it took, and after about a year of this, it's, I started realizing this might have something to do with that whole case on post thing because I haven't cried. I haven't, I, I feel this deep, deep sadness over this loss, but I don't know what to do with it. And slowly once i re once that once that sort of hit me once i had that epiphany i went oh i really need to embrace this emotion i've got to experience this if i don't dive into it and stop resisting it and stop suppressing it it's not going to go away i'm never going to process this experience in a healthy way and so then I kind of just let all the barriers go and I stopped the suppress on it and it all kind of came to the surface. And that was a very, very big and very important part of what I've called my recovery process. Absolutely. So that's been my experience with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've described beautifully, I think, 
the, the issue here. Um, so when you're in a cult and you are not to think about your feelings, because if you did think about your feelings, you'd go, I'm feeling like crap. Let's get out of here. You know, I'm being oppressed and abused. You know, that's what one would do if one was thinking clearly about one's feelings. So the cult has to make you say, as, and this is part of attachment theory, segregate your thinking. So you repress exactly as you said, you know, your feelings, or you kind of rename them in weird ways, depending on the cult. And in the recovery process, what we want to do is integrate those. We want to integrate our feeling and our thinking about what happened. And that's how we get kind of power over it. And is by being able to go, yeah, you know, I was really unhappy because, you know, ABC, this is what was going on. Um, and again, this is also what Dan Siegel talks about. He's done some good work on this. And he talks about trying to integrate um, these different brain systems together. Whereas cults are trying to segregate them. And in attachment theory, John Bowlby talked about when you have these segregated systems, they kind of bleed through inappropriate times, which is what you were describing of suddenly getting crossed with the wrong person. Or, but once you're able to actually kind of have the feeling you don't have to go through everything like you said you don't want to re-traumatize people in certain situations you know each person has to have control over their own story and their own feelings it's kind of up to them how far they want to go but at least to have some understanding about what was the situation what was going on that caused these abuses and um you know caused this distress and once you can begin to have a framework around it you can stop blaming yourself you can work through the feelings of guilt and shame that seem fairly universal of people who come out of cults um, you can look at the fear because people come out with continued terror that stays quite deeply for some time say well do i really need to be afraid how do i get the feeling of safety again um, and that's what I mean when I say you consign the experience to the past. It's not that it's repressing it. It's like you've dealt with it. You've looked at it. Um, and now you've integrated, integrated it into your life story. Yes, I was a member of a cult for 10 years back in the 80s. I got out in 91. Then I went and had this kind of slightly strange academic career. And here I am now. It's sort of an integrated part of my story. Um, it still comes with a little social stigma, but that's because, you know, the world has some work to do to understand this phenomena and not blame the victim, which is still somewhat uh, a big part of things, but hopefully that's slowly getting better. So I have anyway. to agree with you about that exactly. I think the blame the victim mentality is still very strong. I am in the United States. I can't speak to how things are in Europe. I think that there is more progressive work being done in Europe on this sub on this topic than there is in the States. I'm not. I, I, that's just a guess. Yeah, I'm not sure. You know. Yeah. But in, in, um, in Europe, everyone thinks cults only exist in California. That's the. You <laughs> have to convince them. No, London is absolutely full of them. <laughs> oh my God, absolutely. Anywhere. Well, listen, and, and this actually segue, we can segue into this last thing I wanted to talk about with you here today. 
uh, which is a very big topic. I mean, this is, this is a topic that would take up an entire podcast or even a whole book all by itself. Um, in fact, I think it does. I've got a book here by Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind, uh, which is uh, why good people are divided by politics and religion. Um, politics, right? I think, um, uh, you know, these, anywhere human beings exist, high control authoritarian destructive cults can exist. It's just this, it's this abusive relationship, whether it's two people or two million people. And, uh, and we've drawn examples between North Korea, uh, Russia certainly in some aspects. And I think that there's a sort of thing, I've never really thought about this until I was talking to you here today about how to talk about this. And I think it has to do with uh, maybe talking about some groups or some, uh, some behaviors, maybe as half cults. You know, we're not going to go all the way. We're not going to say, okay, uh, the Republican Party or the, the Democratic Party here in the States, for example, they're not full-blown, high-control totalist groups. But politics, more so than I think almost any other group except religion, lends itself to this kind of extremist thinking. Uh, and, I, and I've noted this in, in, in coming out of, in, out of the big wide world, out of my bubble world of the Sea Org and Scientology, where I paid almost no attention at all. I just dismissed politics entirely, as Hubbard said to do, because he said it's all insane. Well, then I embraced it. Then I started looking at you know, progressive left-wing values, which are very human rights-oriented values. And I thought, okay, this is really good. I'm going to align myself with this. Then I start seeing extremist activities on all ends of the political spectrum. I see uh, you know, some pretty nonsensical stuff going on with some totalist thinking on the right. I see some stuff going on on the extreme left, not all the left, but on the extreme left, you see suppression of freedom of speech in the name of protecting people or not being offensive. I see, you know, shutting down free speech in the name of, you know, protecting people and safe spaces and this kind of thing. And I go, yeah, no, I'm not really into that either. But you can't have a rational, it, it, I found it to be almost impossible to have a rational conversation about this because people get so triggered. They get so reactionary to their, whatever their political beliefs are, left or right. Uh, the only people I don't see are extreme centrists. <laughs> <laughs> What's your take on this as a sociologist and as a, a former cult member and expert on this stuff? Well, I mean, like you, when I got out of my group, I had to review my belief system, you know, from the bottom up, right? And I, you know, ended up reading the UN Declaration of Human Rights, and that seemed to me a very sound document that I could relate to. And then some years later, when I'd sort of more recovered, I, and I was looking at the economic system that's causing rising inequality, massive, massive inequality. I realized that I'm probably still a Marxist. In, in that, Marx understood the flow of capital and how capital moved and what, were, what kind of had to happen if you only had profit as your driving motive. Anyway, we won't go into that, but that still made sense to me. The methods of organizing of, say, Leninism that I had previously adhered to, I no longer adhere to. Um, this kind of secret cell structure and so forth, because it's so obviously, you know, able to be abused. Um, certainly there are extreme left-wing cults. I mean, you know, I 
the by any means necessary movement based in Detroit is the one I'm kind of aware of right now. Uh, Lyndon LaRouche's group famously started left wing, then turned right, very right wing, which it is now, and anti-Semitic and all sorts. Um, and there's many others. And I tried to speak out about, certainly about the left wing groups, which is difficult because, as I said, I still consider myself a leftist, but I don't want the left that I believe in, which is a human rights based left, to be disabled by these cultic groups because I myself was disabled as a political activist by getting in one of those groups. And I don't want other young people who we need to help try to change things being disabled and that energy and us losing that useful energy. On the right, I think right now we have a really different and difficult situation and much more serious. I'm much more worried about the right right now. And anyone who's listening who wants to understand what's happening to um, the US right now and the forces propping up Trump and much of the Republican Party would do very well to read Jeff Charlotte's books, The Family is one and C Street is the other. These are absolutely brilliant uh, journalistic investigative books which shed a light on the right-wing fundamentalist evangelical cult, uh, which is based in Washington, D.C., which has its tentacles kind of throughout uh, a lot of the fundamentalist uh, evangelical and, quote, Christian uh, groups. And these are very much... Um, uh, implicated in the things that are going on right now. And I think we need to get educated about that because I'm extremely frightened, as is much of the world, as is much of the US, because we're seeing too much that, right, it's not yet a cult, it's not yet a totalitarian state, but it has too many of the warning signs and way more, you know, I just don't see this in the Democratic Party, although there are a few Democrats who are part, who are to do with this family C Street cult. But, you know, we see in Trump the charisma and the authoritarianism. He's got that bad combination. We see the fiction and the lies, which are typical of a cult. And again, referring back to Hannah Arendt, you know, that's a good read if you want to understand what's happening now. We see um, what I talk about in my book and what Arendt talks about as this unstable lieutenant layer in his system. They don't last long, do they? You know, he bumps them, doesn't bump them off, he <laughs> knocks them off their, you know, very rapidly because he's the one who has to co get control. I'd say we see in the tweeting, the Trump specialty tweeting, this thing of bypassing the normal bureaucratic structures that are normal, whether you like it or not, Democratic or Republican government, but they normally are sort of balanced by this bureaucracy, um, you know, the checks and balances that we uh, know so well and count on. That's kind of all getting sidestepped. So these are the kind of things that make me extremely worried you know the single truth of a cult comes only from the leader they're the only one who can make things right and we're hearing that again um, I'd say from Trump 
I'm sure there's many other warning signs, but I, I lay awake nights, you know, adding. Well, you're not the only one. Taking off a... the boxes, you know, and yeah. people take this seriously. It's, it's really not funny. Absolutely. That's the thing I've been saying from day one is I looked at him talking and I thought to myself immediately, narcissist. Yeah. And it's only proven itself over and over and over again as I watch this. And you can't label somebody correctly as a narcissist and then expect good things from them. These yeah. two things don't go together. And I, I, I try to get this across to people that it's not a matter of my political opinions. That's not my exactly. concern. Exactly. It has nothing to do with whether I want free health, free stuff or yeah. universal healthcare, or this or that. These are not the basis on which I make my judgment about Donald Trump as an individual or those who enable him. Because we're talking, if, it, if the same things, if I was observing the exact same things from some political figures on the left, mm -hmm. I'd be saying the exact same Me thing. Too. Me too. The, yeah, the markers are the markers. The warning signs are the warning signs. And history has taught us this over and over and over again. So, you know, uh, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. The enemy, all this enemy talk, the demonizing of various populations from the press to immigrants to, you know, whoever's going to be coming next. You know, we know that from, from our cults, right? You know, it's the outside. You've got to have this kind of boundary between the quote, good people inside and the bad people outside. But by the way, the people inside aren't really safe either. They have to keep proving they're good or they're gonna be the demons. Um, I mean, you just see all this stuff. Um, so I think, you know, it's been very interesting to me the last year, how much cults are in the media, you know, some good things and some not so good things. I mean, Leah Rimini, I think has been a huge uh, part of that. The wild, wild country, which I don't think was very good, but nonetheless, it's been in the media. The Nixium stuff. Um, I mean, it's kind of really a big deal in the media right now. And I think partly it's because there's these exposés coming out. I think partly there's a maturity in our small field where we're getting a bit more of a voice now. Another reason for you to go for your <laughs> academic career. Um, and I think part, partly because of Trump. And, you know, we're seeing the C word now be used. Um, who was it? The Democrat Crocker, was it? I can't remember. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's been a, a, a Corker and also, Corker. Um, uh, oh, God, I can't remember. Anna Navarro also yeah. has used that word. I think she's many a CNN. Other, yeah, many other people, both Republicans and other, are using this word. So, you know, just coming full circle to the apologists who like to say there is no such thing as a cult, I say, well, maybe there isn't, but it seems like a lot of people have some common understanding of what this word refers to, whether they're academics or lay people, it means something. Um, and that's why I continue to use the word because I'm, I believe in, uh, you know, George Orwell's view that let's use plain English and let's call a spade a spade. And this, most people have a pretty good idea of what a cult is. Not, you know, they may not have my complex academic analysis or your complex understanding, but they kind of know it's, it's not a good thing. And people are kind of controlled by a nasty leader. That is sort of the basics. And so, you know, it's because that exists. It's reality. We're not talking fiction here. We're trying to reflect 
what's real. And by the way, a little shout out to John Attack, <laughs> because his book, A Piece of Blue Sky, was a book I read quite early on in my um, trying to learn about all this stuff. And I just think that's a brilliant example of telling the truth about something, actually reflecting the reality of what's going on instead of the BS, you know. And he wasn't just an academic, he was, you know, a writer and a former member. He just did a lot of really good research, put it on the page, and, you know, that was a fantastic book. So, you know, people are, have, have done and are doing really good work in this field. I agree completely, and uh, and I count your work in that. Thank you. You know, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, guys, if you out there, we're gonna we're gonna bring this show to a close now. I think we've covered some good stuff here, and I and I uh, I want to reiterate uh, for anybody in terms of the 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 the, pol the political thing. It's such a highly charged thing that I'm sure just having brought it up, probably had a couple people, ah, screw these people, you know, after listening for an hour and going, yes, 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 that all makes sense. Ah, they brought up Trump, ah, these political hacks, you know. Uh, guys, you know, look, it, it's, it comes from a place of honesty. It comes from a place of concern. Whether I'm right or wrong about, you know, certain hot topic political issues isn't the point. The point is that there's behavior here and that behavior is dangerous and that behavior is indicative of a very dangerous stuff, and and the lessons of history are are, are clear on this. So um, so anyway, just wanted to, to reiterate that. Alexandra, thank you very much for being part of this show. I really appreciate your time. Thank you too. It's very interesting. Awesome. Okay. Well, if you guys haven't um, seen her book, uh, Terror, Love, and Brainwashing, check it out. It's on Amazon. You can buy it. I'm, uh, you know, I have it on route to me right now, actually, because uh, after I saw some of her interviews and stuff, I was like, yeah, this is somebody I need to read. Uh, any comments, questions, feedback, commentary, whatever you have, good, bad, or sideways, leave it in the uh, notes here on the in YouTube, on the comments, or at sensiblyspeaking.com. And if you like my show and like the channel and like what I'm doing, go ahead and uh, give me a shout out on Patreon, join up, uh, help support this channel because it's you guys that allow me to keep bringing wonderful people like Alexandra on my show and talk to you guys and educate you about some really interesting, fun stuff. All right, guys, see you next week. Bye-bye.